Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. And then he was like, and next up, Natalie. And I was like, ah, this, I messed up. I made a mistake, right? So I cry and die in that moment. And I go up there and I have my paper in my hand and I attempt to read my poem. What happened with my body is like, first of all, as if this was, this body did not belong to me. I felt utterly betrayed because I have never, I was shaking in places I didn't know you could shake, okay? My knees were shaking in directions knees don't go in. I could not catch my breath in the middle of the poem. I was like, I don't even know why I wrote this poem. These are too many words. Who cares about this stuff? Like I just had abandoned the passion that I had when I was furiously writing this poem. I no longer was attached to, did not care about, thought it was the dumbest poem in the world. And then suddenly was like questioning my existence. like. So I'm like begging the universe to just open up a hole in the floor at this point. Cause I'm like, oh my God, I have so much more on this paper to go. And I finish and I teleport back to my seat. Cause I cannot even tell you how I got back to my seat. When we're talking about diversity, it's not a box to check. It is a reality that should be deeply felt and held and valued by all of us. So that was an Ava DuVernay quote that was featured on the side of a vegan cafe in Los Angeles by the A Love Language Project, which was co-founded by today's guest, a spoken word artist and educator named Natalie Patterson. My name is Light Watkins, and I am the host of At the End of the Tunnel. And funny enough, I happen to be at that cafe with Ava DuVernay, who's a friend, and we saw that quote of hers painted on the side of the cafe, and we took a photo in front of it, not knowing that Natalie, who's also a friend of mine, was one of the creators of that mural. So when I found all of that out during our interview, it was a really nice small world moment for me. So Natalie and I crossed paths for the first time at one of my shine events back in, I believe it was 2017, where she opened the show with a spoken word piece about dating. Here's a short clip from that performance. I like dates that make me write poems when I get home. I want to be thrilled and safe. My body is not an invitation to be taken advantage of. Oh, but I'm fat, which apparently means I'm undeserving and should settle for whoever likes me, but, but I like muscles on my men. I like courage on my women. I like beauty and think I am deserving of waking up next to it. So settling ain't something I'm gonna be doing. I can appreciate people without needing to own them. So yeah, I am single, but there is no absence of love in my life. So stop, stop coming at me like I'm a thing to be pitied, like someone who is missing out. I am deeply, madly, and passionately in love with my life.
As you can hear, Natalie had quite the command of the crowd. She was charming and funny and deep, and everybody loved her. So it's not surprising that she has a fascinating backstory as well. I found that the people who were willing to get up and be vulnerable in front of a crowd of complete strangers usually come from a pretty interesting background. Natalie was no exception. She's from Indiana. Her mom relocated to Pasadena after it was discovered that her dad had a drug problem. And her mom was not into the whole spoken word thing at first. But Natalie insisted. And she cut this really interesting deal with her mom where she structured a poetry writing regimen that I think you're going to be fascinated to hear about. And Natalie ended up being a part of the L.A. Slam poetry team. She was featured on Deaf Poetry All-Stars. And once she found herself performing on a regular basis, her trajectory started veering in the direction of education, which is where she discovered that she's actually pretty talented at teaching spoken word to children. She started several non-projects in the process, including a love language project, which I mentioned earlier. And needless to say, we had a fascinating conversation about family dynamics, the art of spoken word. The difference in memorizing your spoken word and reading it from a sheet of paper, what it takes to start your own open mic, and how you effectively teach poetry to incarcerated youth. So, if you're ready, let's dive into my conversation with Miss Natalie Patterson. Natalie, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. So wonderful to have you here. It's been a few years, I think, since we saw each other in person, and that was at one of those shine events where you actually performed one of your pieces live, which blew the crowd away. I actually looked at it again today and it was so funny and engaging. So I'm really excited to to kind of unpack your story and introduce you to the At the End of the Tunnel audience. Thanks for having me. That's actually one of my favorite performances. I look at that and use that as like reference a lot and I still laugh every single time. So I'm like, I was that was on that day. Wow. What was different about that day compared to other performances? I think I just was really, I was really extraordinarily happy that day. Mm -hmm. I was just in a good moment and I just didn't have any time to be like worried. I just have to be myself because I'm coming from something else. So I have to just show up and be mid flight. Something about not being apologetic, like the opening, like i mess up the microphone and it like hits my mouth and I just like laughed and kept going and was like well anyway and uh, yeah I just was willing and I think that that usually makes the difference yeah you were running late you were coming from the museum of ice cream was that a true story that's a true story <laughs> you thought I was lying on stage? I didn't know if it was a bit you know like a lot of people you have like your things and you're like oh, oh yes, no, the I thing don't you do always that. say I, like, if I have a bit it's actually true and it's just like funny also mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But no, I was coming from the Museum of Ice Cream. It was a total bust. And I was like mad that I had spent $60 on that experience. And I was like, well, I can either be mad or I can move on. And I still got to show up for this show. And it was lovely. So thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, I decided I was going to play a clip of that at the beginning of this podcast, just to give people a little taste of your wonderfulness and how much you had the crowd riled up and everything. So yeah, that was a fun night. All right. So what I want to do in this conversation is I want to start by going back to Kokomo, Indiana. <laughs> oh, Lord. You were uh, possibly conceived, but definitely born in Kokomo, 
Yeah, yeah. I probably was conceived in Kokomo. That's awkward to think about. But I just, I, you know, what's funny about that is I just wrote a poem that's even more awkward than that, wondering if my mother had an orgasm when I was created. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe it's not awkward at all, you know? What's that one called? I don't even know if it has a name yet. I think it's called <laughs> Become, actually. Become. <laughs> Oh my God. Anyway, I love that. For another day. Or maybe today. Who knows? You know? What were the circumstances that you were born into? My mother and father were married and had been married for several years. They knew each other since high school and they were like kind of like high school sweethearts. My mother was 35. I was her third child before me. She had lost a baby and Basically, all the doctors and everyone told her, like, you're never going to be able to have another child. And my mother was like, no, I'm having a child. So she was very excited and anticipating my arrival. And I was actually the first child of my father who has many children before me. I was the first child he actually saw be born. You know, there's stories about that. (laughs) And your mom and your siblings didn't stay in Kokomo for very long. No. So we stayed in Kokomo until I was four and my father got caught up in the, you know, the eighties crack era of like a high school friend of his being like, Oh, there's some new drugs. And they had like only ever smoked weed. And, you know, a bunch of people start taking crack thinking it's like just the new cool thing, not realizing that it would completely derail their lives. And it did derail my dad's life for like 20 years. So my parents split up. My mom was like, there's no way my daughter and my children are going to be raised in this kind of environment. And we were all really little. So my mom was like, can't take any risk and moved us to California. And um, we've been here ever since. And you were old enough to remember some of that, right? Four years old, I imagine. You have some memory of some of the drama that unfolded. Not really drama. Like my parents didn't really have any drama. It was more that like my dad still went to work every day. Like he was totally functioning and also doing crack, which it sounds wild. He was a functional crackhead. Like really like knowing what we know about crack now, that sounds very wild to think. But at the time he maintained a full-time job. He was still doing most of the things that he was responsible for doing, but his behavior was getting erratic. And my mom knew like, "Mm, this is not sustainable. And my children are too young. And she talks about an instance of like her coming home. And my dad was like responsible for picking me up from my grandmother's house and bringing me home after he got off work. But he would like bring his friends around the house also. And so my mom comes in to this scene of all these grown men hanging out and drinking beer and whatever with this little tiny girl child. And there was just this moment where she was like, yeah, this isn't going to work because the stakes are too high and the possibility for something going wrong here is really high. And so this is not a thing. Was it a Dear John situation where she, you guys escaped in the middle of the night or was it a little bit more civil? He went to work one day and my mom packed up the entire house and drove to California and left him a note that said, I'm gone. That was not the first conversation that they had about like things needing to change. From what I understand now, I've I've spoken to both of them about it because my memory of that is not obviously the same as the reality of what was happening for them. And I didn't learn 
a lot of the truth until I was much older and old enough to be like, so what the hell happened? <laughs> like, I, there's some missing pieces here. Um, but yeah, essentially she escaped and made a life for herself in, in Los Angeles. Why Los Angeles? My older brother and sister's father was here and they were here. They were already going to school here. My mom had like strategically planned and kept them. They would spend summers with their dad. And so they just didn't come back to Indiana for the fall. And my dad didn't really realize because he was like doing drugs and, you know, whatever. So he wasn't really realizing like, oh, the pattern has broken. And my mom just had them enrolled in school here. And we made our way here to try to figure out what the next part of our lives would look like, but at least doing it together. How would you say that affected you being away from your father? Oh my God, it had humongous. So also like, it's not just the being away. It's that there was secrecy up until the time I was probably 15 or 14 when I really was like, had a very direct conversation with my mom and was like on the hunt for my father. I was like, he's somewhere. I need to talk to him. You're not reliable. I don't know what the story is and I need the whole story. But I think it had a tremendous impact on the way I process so much and the way I navigate life. My dad, I spent a lot of time with my dad. He was like the kind of dad who combed your hair and rubbed your back and fixed you breakfast. Like he was that kind of dad. So by no means am I attempting to paint him as like some horrible person, like addiction happens. And oftentimes to really incredible people. And so there was just a lot that I didn't know when we left my dad. I didn't know that that's what we were doing. My mom told me that we were coming to visit my older brother and sister. And so that's what I assumed we were doing. I didn't know we'd be doing that forever. <laughs> you were like, okay, so uh, it's time to go back now. It's oh, been a couple weeks. It's fun, but like, what's <laughs> happening here? Were you allowed to call him and talk to him? Kind of. But of course, because their relationship was like strained, they were like, she was like trying to figure that out. I imagine there was a period where they tried to reconcile. Um, and my dad came to California and I have a very vivid memory of my mom saying we were like going to the bank or something. And when we got there, I saw my dad and I was like, that's my dad. And I don't know how much time had passed, but I imagine maybe like six months or something. And I realized that that's my dad. And so I'm like, it's so excited. And then they do this like custody handoff, but no one tells me, but I'm like excited to be with my dad. And we end up going to this apartment that he was staying at. And I just remember being there and this moment of sheer panic sets in of like, where am I? And like, yeah, this is my dad, but what? Nah. And I just remember this panic of me trying to remember my phone number because I was like, I need to call my mom. She needs to come get me. And my dad like had gone out to like get ice or I don't know something. And I was like, in this time that he's away, I need to call for help. And I was like trying to furiously remember my phone number. And I was like in this panic. I don't remember what came of that, but I just remember this feeling of not wanting to embarrass him, but knowing that I didn't want to be there and that Mm. no one had asked me if I would be okay doing whatever it was just like adults doing a thing with a kid but no one explaining and I was always the kind of kid and still am the kind of person that context really matters to me you were like four or five at the time yeah I was probably like five and it was like nah y'all doing the most right now I did not enjoy that experience at all 
So was that the moment where you kind of detached from missing your dad as, as so much that you wanted to still live around him? No, I don't think it was about detaching. It was just like I was a kid and I couldn't contextualize what was happening. Mm-hmm. And I was under my mom's care. So it was just like wherever my mom went, that's where I was. They ended up not getting back together. and My dad went back to Indiana. And so I just was like with my mom and kind of distracted. And the mm-hmm. only times that I would really think about like, hmm, something is not right about this was like when I saw my other friends' dads. And I was like, wait, their dad is like always around. Hmm, that's weird. But my mom is not the kind of person who discloses. She's very, very private. She thinks that there are things that are her business and not for anyone else to know, even if you're included in the business. <laughs> and so she just wasn't forthcoming about that kind of stuff. And so I just was like trying to figure out what was going on and being reminded when it's like Father's Day and at school, they're like, make a Father's Day card. And I'm like, where is my dad? Like, these are curious. This is a curious case. But it didn't make me stop missing him. I just was more preoccupied with like, what even happened? Something happened for me where I felt like my equilibrium was off. And like, my trust for my intuition was a little bit wonky. Because I was like, how did I not know we were leaving my dad? Like, how did I miss that something serious was happening? And I think that that's the kind of sensitivity that I I carry in my life where I'm like, what's happening here? It's mm. kind of always the question that I'm asking. I'm always looking at the dynamics and going, what's happening for each person? And like, how can this be a whole and healthy situation for everyone? Um, mm-hmm. It informs all of my work, honestly. There's also a directness to your work where you just go right to the, the bullseye of the situation. I'm not at all like covert. I'm like, so let's name a thing <laughs> and we can deal with it. Because I can to- I'm totally the kind of person I can deal with anything. If we're living in reality and honesty about it, I can figure out a solution. I can figure out how to be okay with it. I'm just not cool with deception. I don't think it's a necessary component of life. I don't know if you, how you feel about reincarnation and these kinds of concepts, but if a soul was going to incarnate on the planet Earth and they wanted to express as a spoken word artist and have that directness and that transparency and that ability to kind of call things out, I can't imagine a more perfect situation. <laughs> for them to organize you know what i mean yeah i mean i think a lot of things aligned around my existence so i wouldn't be surprised (laughs) the crew was on the other side like okay so we need to tell the truth who's the right person and they're like not that and then here i am When you think back to five-year-old Natalie, what was your favorite toy or activity as a child? When I think about my childhood, there wasn't a lot of fun because I was always around adults. And my mom was a single mom who was like busting her ass all the time. And so I was like, I was living a very adult kind of existence. Like my mom worked in a law firm. And so like I spent my evenings and afternoons sitting under her desk doing homework in a law firm from the time I was like six. So like I wasn't outside playing with my friends necessarily. But I think like when there was fun, I loved being in water. I loved swimming. I loved running until I got boobs. That was a real Debbie Downer for me. But I was really interested in people. From very young, I was always interested in people. 
I wanted to know what they were doing and why they were doing it and how they were doing it. So I think more important than toys were people to me. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. People watching or going up to strangers and starting starting conversations and that kind of thing? Like observing behavior, having interactions and like the nuance and the silence between things and proximity was really interesting to me. That there were some people who would walk down the street and they would be touching the person that they were with. Or some people, there'd be a lot of distance between them, but they were still together. Or their kid was walking behind them and they never looked back. Would you make up stories about giving context to those images? Yeah. I mean, I was always like, I wonder if they like each other. Maybe they don't like each other. Maybe they don't even know each other. I vividly remember thinking as a kid that people getting married was like traumatizing, which I'm not going to say I don't still also think, but I thought that you didn't know the person. I thought that you just were like in a ceremony and in a moment. And then like he takes the veil off and you're like, he's like surprised. And you're like, surprise. And then you guys have to kiss. And I thought, how mortifying to kiss this stranger in front of people. This is awful and awkward. And also because I perceived that a lot of people were kissing in a really awkward way. And so I was like, they must not know each other. Why would you do this? And then people are watching like, this is ridiculous. And so I was like, yeah, I don't think marriage, I don't think people should do that. That's a weird thing. And I remember that from very early on. I was like, "Mm, I don't think this is right. When you were a preteen, how were you thinking about your life? Like when you got older, did you have ideas like, I'm going to not never get married or I'm going to work as a lawyer or what was your idea about Big Natalie? I was so ready to be an adult. I was like, I need to be older so people can listen to me because I have answers and I don't know why other people don't have them, but I have them. And if somebody will just listen, I can fix this was a lot of what was happening for me in my teenage years. Junior high, I really struggled with like effective communication. And I'm really grateful for like the mentors and teachers that I had that were like, 
got me involved with conflict mediation and peer counseling and things like that, where I could learn how to use language. I could learn how to problem solve. And so once I learned those things that like shifted me where, I mean, I had a conversation with my mom and I was like, so I'm think I'm a world leader and no one will listen to me because I'm young and I'm a girl. And how do I make them listen to me? And do I have to be older or like, what do I need to do? Because this is not right. Was like one of the conversations I remember having in like probably ninth or 10th grade. And that was the kind of person I was. I was like, I'm a leader. And you're also at South Pasadena um, your high school, which I don't know much about South Pasadena, but I can't imagine there are a lot of black people in South Pasadena. So what was that conversation like both in your head and in your home around the fact that you're black and whatever that means in this society? We always had the like, you're black, you can't do the things white people do. You need to behave in a certain way. You need to always be better and prepared. And like that conversation was like from birth. So by the time I was in like junior high and high school, I knew that I was privileged because my mom could make it happen such that I was in a good school. Education was always really important to her and to my family. That was just like, you're going to college. You're going to be as smart as you can possibly be. We're going to try to make that happen. And so South Pass was just part of that, of like, that kids that go to South Pass go to college and they go to good colleges and they're well-prepared. Socioeconomically, they're pretty wealthy. So it's like, it was, it was the path. My mom was creating a hack and being like, yeah, I'm a single mom and I can't afford all of these things, but I'm going to get you into the school and you're going to do your best. And I think the brilliance and the downfall of South Pass is that when you're a South Pass kid, you're taken care of and you're in a bubble. And so I was taken care of, but I still was black. And so I wasn't taken care of like the white kids were, but I was taken care of better than all of my other black friends who didn't go to South Pass. I went to college and I could take the SATs and I was safe and anything I wanted to do, I could do. I ran for class president and like I could do all of the things. I could go on class trips and I could, whatever there was to do, it was available to me. I had all the materials. I had great teachers, but I'm also a light skinned black person. And so I recognized that my darker skin classmates were not treated like I was. So I would always make a point to be an advocate. And to like talk about injustices that I was witnessing. And I was routinely in my principal's office asking her, why is this person being treated this way? Or I don't think this is fair. Because I knew I could say things that they couldn't say. And things that the white kids didn't know to say. So I would create allies with my white friends and be like, this is messed up. And we got to do a thing. And then they'd be like, okay, what do we got to do? So I was always that person, like being a bridge and trying to rally people around like how to be more just and how to find equity in a situation. And sometimes that took, and sometimes they were like, okay, black girl, we've had enough. And then I'd be like, well, there's more coming though. So good luck with that. Was Raquel black? And talk about that moment when you, when you witness her saying her poetry in 10th grade. Okay. So her name is Raquel. It was quail at the time. She has a different Raquel. Because she's married now. So she was my Hawaiian homegirl, which there were like no other Hawaiian kids in our school. So she was like beautiful and interesting and like spent her summers in Hawaii. So she was already like magical. And then on top of it, we had to write a poem and the teachers like put us in groups and they put us in the groups and we all were like, we don't know how to write a poem. And she just busts out the most magnificent little ditty I've ever heard. 
And I was sitting there looking at her like, so you're magic. Like, that's what that is. Got it. And it was like in that moment that I was like, and no moment before then had I even given a shit about poetry. It was in that exact moment that I was like, I, I need to know how to do that. That's, that's a thing. But you had been journaling your whole life. I had always been journaling, but that didn't occur to me that that was like poetry. I was just like talking to myself on paper. <laughs> like no one had said that that was like a thing that you could like do that and people would listen. I was doing that because I felt like no one was listening. Hmm. But when I saw her do it and we were in a group and then she read it back, we all were like, the hairs on our neck were standing up and we were like, how did you do this? And everyone else was like, whew, great. She did it for us. But I was going, how did you just do that? Like what magic happened? Because I need it. Was her poem, did it have like a level of honesty that was just engaging or what was it about it that really impressed you? I think it was just that she just did it and it was effortless. She was connected enough to her creativity to A, not be shy to do it. Like you think about a high school classroom and you have to like do a group project. Like no one's like excited to do that. Everyone is like, "Mm, who's going to go first? And she just sat down and fluidly wrote this beautiful poem. While we all were like, what's the poem prompt? What do we have to, you know, like we had, we couldn't even get it together. And she had written this magnificent actual poem. I cannot for the life of me remember a single word in that poem. I don't remember the topic. I just remember that I was like, oh, this is what brilliance is. Mm. This is what magic is. This is what being fully aligned is. And it changed the energy of our group because she could just do it. And we were like, whoa. It was what beauty is to me. So when you were planning to go to Cal State LA, did you have aspirations of being a spoken word poet or what was your thinking? I didn't even have aspirations to go to college. I just had to go. Because your mom told you you had to go? She told me I had to go. And I was like, what in I, where do I go? And I talked to my counselor and she was like, just go here. Like, it's local. It's good. It's fine. Right. And I was like, fine. I started college two weeks after I graduated high school. And yeah, no, I was just like going because you had to go and was like, hopefully there's something interesting here. And I was really into sociology. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Didn't know this existed. What is this? Interesting. But in my head, I was like, I'll either be a lawyer and be a really serious person who wears stilettos and a pencil skirt. I was like, okay, so I, I could do that. I also was like psychology, I thought was really interesting to me. And so I took my first psychology course. And I was like, oh, a soft science. Yeah, I'm not good at that. So we're going to do something else. My professor also was an ass. So I was like, this is not going to be for me. But I also was then introduced to poetry as I know it. That same year, a guy asked me out on a date and took me to the poetry lounge. I was sitting on a beanbag. It completely changed my entire life. This man who smelled like car parts. (laughs) (laughs) And we were late. And so we had to sit on stage on the beanbags because it's like a hundred seat theater, 300 people jammed in. And so people were on the, on the stage and in the chair, like just everywhere. 
and I was wearing a skirt because I was thought I was going on a date. So I was like wearing a skirt because I thought at 18 or 19, that was like what you were supposed to wear on a date. And then we were like sitting on the stage. So I was awkward the entire time because I was like, I don't need people to see my hoo-ha. But I was just enamored by the fact that 300 people would listen to people talk for four hours. And I was just like in that moment, like I'm just going to keep coming every single week until I figure out what's happening here. Did anything happen with the car parts guy or was that like a one and done? (laughs) No, no, that was, that was over. That was over. (laughs) He Dracula kissed me at the end of the night and I just, (laughs) yeah, we're not in the same sphere. No. But he did his part as the angel that introduced you to the poetry louds. Blessings to the man. I can't remember his name, but blessings. My best friend and I still talk about him to this day because it was him and Black Planet that really set me on the path for Mm. my career in poetry. Black Planet, that was the dating. That was like the online. Look, it was for Black people and it was where we went to be in the DMs before there were DMs. Right. And the Poetry Lounge is that place on Fairfax, right? Like just north of like Melrose or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's by the football field. Mm-hmm. And I remember I used to live over there. I never knew about the poetry lounge, but I know during a weeknight, and now I'm remembering it was Tuesday or Thursday night, Tuesday. it'd be packed, all these black people like filing out and like hanging out. And I was like, what is going on? Is it a nightclub or what's going on? But now I know because I interviewed uh, NQ not that long ago, and he, he had his whole turned out moment at the poetry lounge as well. And That's I think that was around the same time. Yeah, we grew up in the poetry lounge together. Yeah, yeah. So that's really that's really cool. So you went back the next week. Did you bring something to read? No, I didn't read probably for like three or five months. I would just go every single week and listen because I was trying to figure out number one, who are the power players? (laughs) Who runs this? What's the politics of this? What's going on? That's what I was trying to understand first. Like, is this a place I even want to put? what I wrote down Uh is this a place I want it to even be. And then I was trying to figure out who are the power players? Where are the women? Is this like a club? Is this just a one-off? Do none of these people know each other? I was trying to orient. And then once I figured out what was going on, I was like, okay, I'm going to read a poem. Now keep in mind every single day I was writing poems. Like from the day I went to the poetry lounge, I was like, what I'm writing, these are poems. Now I need more and better. What themes did you notice when those first few months when you were just observing? What themes were getting the biggest response? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think just like people, either people like talking about love or dating or like super, super personal stuff. Like you could see that someone was going through something and they wrote a poem about their dad dying or finding out they have cancer or you know, something like that was kind of getting the most, but also it's an open mic. So there's also people who are like, my turtle walked me. And you're like, what? This is like American Idol audition week. So what were you writing about in those first few months? I literally was like writing about myself and the universe and trying to figure out what is this life thing? Are we all doing the same thing? Have we done it before? What is reincarnation? What are ancestors? How does all this work together? Like I was trying to figure out, I was really, really burdened with what's going on here and what are we all here to do? And how do you know if you're doing it? 
And so I was trying to write myself into answers. I was trying to unpack. And in many ways, like so much of my writing is like me talking to my higher self, me talking to God, me processing a thing that I don't really know how to process or a thing that I'm, I don't have another place to process it. Like sometimes I have language for something, but no ears to hear it. And so I can always write about it. Talk about the first time you went up. First time I went on stage, I don't know even what poem I had, right? You had, was, you, had to sign, you had to sign up, I'm assuming. You, you get up. there. You, so first you of all, there 300 time. people in this space. Uh-huh. And at that time, the guys, it's four founders who ended up being great friends of mine. The way that they did things, I felt was not a right. Okay, so I should just say that from the beginning. But they would take a piece of paper and they would write one through 20 down the side of the paper and then drop it on the floor. And you would essentially have to like, like wolves, wrestle, fight, yeah, yeah, like wolves or like crabs in a barrel, <laughs> would have to like fight to get your name on one of those slots. And if you didn't, then you just have to try to sign up in the second half. I signed up, and the first week I signed up, he didn't call my name, and I was like, "Whew!" I was like, kind of elated. <laughs> and I think I signed up maybe two or three weeks, but my name was like number fifteen or sixteen, so I was like, "He probably won't get to me." But because he had seen me, and by he, I'm talking about Sheehan Van Cleef, a, a poet, he bumped me up in the list because he had seen that I had signed up a couple of times. So he was really trying to get to me. Well, I didn't know that he was going to do that. So mm. when he was reading names, I was like, mm, I'm never really going to go. So it's You weren't ready. Right. I, I could just be relaxed. And then he was like, and next up, Natalie. And I was like, ah, this I missed up I made a mistake right so I cry and die in that moment and I go up there and I have my paper in my hands and I attempt to read my poem what happened with my body is like first of all as if this was this body did not belong to me I felt utterly betrayed I was shaking in places I didn't know you could shake okay my knees were shaking in directions knees don't go in I could not catch my breath in the middle of the poem, I was like, I don't even know why I wrote this poem. These are too many words. Who cares about this? Talk? Like, I just had abandoned the passion that I had when I was furiously writing this poem. I no longer was attached to, did not care about, thought it was the dumbest poem in the world. And then suddenly was like questioning my existence. Like, why did I think I should read this? Poem? <laughs> you're having this whole other dialogue while you're, you're like Meanwhile, having an I'm outer like, body experience. Blah, 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 whatever, right? <laughs> So I'm like begging the universe to just open up a hole in the floor at this point. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, I have so much more on this paper to go. And I finish and I teleport back to my seat. Cause I cannot even tell you how I got back to my seat and I sit down. I believe that I had a friend with me cause I never went alone at that time. And I looked over and I said, did they clap? And she goes, what do you mean? Of course they clapped. She's like, you didn't hear them. Probably for the first year of performing, I had no recollection of what happened after I read the poem. Like, just none. What about during the poem? Because I know when you spoke, at, when you did your thing at The Shine, you made a disclaimer at the very beginning. Like, I want you guys to give me feedback, you know, anything you want to say. If you feel something, yell it out, blah, blah, blah. So that wasn't a part of your show. <laughs> no, that was not. In that first year. Well, it's really lovely that you thought that was a show. Those were just like occurrences. (laughs) They were not, you know, bless everybody's heart that was in that audience and clapped for me because 
honey, I was going through it in those mm. performances. No, I don't. I have no recollection of anything. What were you learning about yourself as a spoken word artist in that first year from, from just going up on stage and having that experience? Well, first of all, I was not calling myself anything at that point. <laughs> in fact, I remember asking my friend Jamel, who, who was the DJ at the Poetry Lounge at the time, I remember asking him, how do I know when I can call myself a poet? And he said, do you have to tell a tree it's a tree? And he was like giving me all the parables. And I was like, yeah, so I'm not here for that. If you could just give me a direct <laughs> answer, because I don't know what that means. I'm sitting in my insecurity. So that's cute. But if you could just say like, yes, you're a poet or no, that'd be helpful. And he wouldn't do that for me. He was like, this is your process. So like, figure it out. So I think I was learning about myself that I was learning about all the places that I held insecurity. Mm -hmm. I was learning about what discipline looked like. Like when you really want something, when you really have a passion and you feel called to do something, what does it require to be great? And then how do you define great? Is my great the same as everybody else's who steps on this stage? So I was really learning about like, what is artistry? Does everyone have it? Is everyone who's on stage trying to be an artist? Or are they just trying to share? Are they performing? What are they doing? And what do I want to be doing? And so I was really, in many ways, defining myself as a human and making choices. And so while my other friends were in college, I was in college learning how to be a human in the world of poetry. Who were some of the other poets there in that first, in those early days that you kind of looked at and you thought to yourself, gosh, they make it so effortless. I'm so inspired by every time they get up on stage, they just kill every single time. I mean, there were so many people. There was a poet who I believe lives in Hawaii now, Bridget Gray, who was just like, first of all, she's like six feet tall. So it was already like your thing, right? And she just had so much power. She could make the room vibrate. She could make every person in that room fall in love with her, male, female, or otherwise. You wanted to know her. You were interested in who she was. No matter what poem she said, you needed to know more about her. And I was like, okay, that's power. I'm trying to see what that's about. Of course, I was raised by so many men in that community, like Sekou the Misfit, Inq, Omari Hardwick, who's gone on to be, you know, an actor, Shihan, Jamel, Poetry. There were so many guys who were doing things, but there were very few women in that community. Thea Monier was one of one of the poets that I, I, I really respected. Rachel Kahn, Rachel McKibbins, who lives in New York now. But these incredibly powerful women who really changed the space because the space was really gendered at the time and I'm not there anymore so I don't know what it looks like now but it was very gendered it was very like either showing up as alpha male super masculine or being like a nerd person or being like super powerful woman and there was really <laughs> nothing else I always felt like I'm kind of a blend like I can kick it with the dudes but I'm also hella woman. And so like, where's the space between is what I was always trying to figure out and trying to like carve out for myself of like, I want to sit somewhere between both of these things. And that's what I was really trying to teach myself is how do I, how do I occupy that space, not only on stage, but anywhere I am, that everywhere becomes a space that is my own. And I think being on stage 
there, but also around the country, really, really taught me that. You ended up withdrawing yourself from college after a year. And I know you joined the LA Slam team. So talk a little bit about that process. I started college two weeks after graduating high school. And I just like jumped into school and I was like, okay, let me just do this as fast as possible. And after my first year in the summer, I had had a professor who I really connected with and she was really cool to me. And I was like, she gets me. She sees what I'm trying to do. And she's like being supportive. So she told me towards the end of my first year to come and see her. And she wanted to like check in. And so I did. And she asked how the school year had gone. And I was like, you know, it's cool. I'm taking these classes and blah, blah, whatever. And then she's like, okay, so, you know, what are you really excited about? And I started talking about poetry and I completely lit up. And she says to me, I probably could get fired for telling you this, but there's nothing we have here that's going to do that for you. You found your thing. And so you need to study that the way you would study in school. And I was like, done deal. And so I called my mother to tell her that I was, I was leaving school for a year. Cause I thought if I said a year, that would like, okay, I, this can work. I was like, so my pitch was, I'm 19. If I'm doing something stupid, this is the time in my life to do it. So mm-hmm. I want to take a year off. I have no responsibilities. I'm not screwing anything up. Yes, you might hold some disappointment, but this is the time to do that. So I want to take a year off and explore poetry. And so the deal was that if nothing happened in a year through poetry, then I would go back to school without hesitation. And my mother does the like, if I would have known that you wanted to be poor, I wouldn't have worked so hard to keep you in the best school. And I was like, okay, lady, chill out. (laughs) Then that made me like ferocious in terms of like trying to attain success. So I was writing poems every single night. My mom would wake up and first thing in the morning, I'd be like, here, you want to hear this poem I wrote? Because I was like, she needs to see that I'm doing something. And every morning she'd be like, you wrote this overnight? And I was like, yeah, I did. Cause I'm awesome. Have a little faith. And of course I was working out the awesome part, but I was like trying, you know what I mean? And so I would just do that every single night. And that led into me having a mentor named Babu, who was a really brilliant poet. He was like mentoring me and basically said, you know, slam, which is competitive poetry is different than spoken word. It is a competition. So anytime you hear language like slam, that means people are competing. He was like, that would be really good for you. It'll help you develop your chops and get you really comfortable on stage. And so he started coaching me and he was like, you know, let's go for the LA Slam team and see if you can make it. And I did. Is this a paid mentorship or is he just doing you a favor or did he like you? Like what was, what was the dynamic there? He thought I was hot and talented. That if we really keep it in a hundred. He was just like, you're new and cute and also talented. And so like, so he was trying to holler at you, basically. He's low-key trying to holler and also trying to like give me whatever wisdom he had. What was your writing process like? Because you if doing it every night, obviously you developed some sort of process. Like how would you get the inspiration? Would you read a note from your journal and like that would trigger something? Or would you watch television or meditate? What would you do to, to get that spark of an idea? I literally have always been the same. I don't I don't have anything that needs to inspire me, like life is inspiring. So I just pay attention to what's happening around me. I always am filled with questions, things that I'm wondering about. 
And so I just would make time to write. So I've always been a person who liked to write at night. I stay up really, really late. Sometimes I go to bed at like 7 a.m. Drinking your black tea. Drinking black tea. <laughs> Although I'm not drinking caffeine right now. Ugh, devastating. But yes, I'm a lover of black tea. But yeah, I would just stay up and write. So it wasn't anything that needed to spark me. There was so much that I was curious about that I would just make space to explore it. But how did you know an idea was worthy of exploration? Because I can feel it. I feel words. So I always have been that way. I know when something's important or special, I can always see a spark in something. And typically I can see it before other people can, which is, is a double-edged sword. Because hmm. oftentimes people are like, that's not the thing. And then I'm like, just wait for it. It'll be a thing. And then it's the thing that I'm like, hate to be the person that said, I told you so, but I told you so. So yeah, I mean, I can just always feel when something's important. And I can always feel when the poem is done. Like I don't have a, I just free write. I don't like structure. And so I just write until I'm finished. Is there a certain length that you will then go back and edit a poem down to so you can, so it's like, I don't know if at the poetry lounge, you only had a three or four minute window. So it has to be within that time frame. Yeah. I mean, I got kind of conditioned to write in like three to four minute spurts. Some of my beginning pieces were much longer than that. And so I would have to edit them down to three minutes. But at that point I was like developing what editing looked like and what that meant. Cause I was just like writing and then when I started slamming, it was like, okay, so now you have to make sure that this is under three minutes. And so then I was like, oh, how do you edit things that you think are important out? But I just developed a like, I know what three minutes feels like after 10 years of being on stage and having to be mindful of that. So my writing just naturally kind of falls within that now. But I didn't, mm -hmm. I, it was like a struggle for like maybe two weeks. And then it was like, this is just the format. Beautiful. Babu had done the whole Obi-Wan Kenobi thing, preparing you for for the slam competitions. And uh, you were part of a team. And I, I'm assuming that's the time in your career, if you want to call it that, where you decided, hey, I'm going to read my poetry from a page or from a phone or whatever, as opposed to memorizing it. Can you talk about that decision making process? So that process? actually didn't happen then. So I started slamming and I ended up actually being on a team with Babu and Jamel from the Poetry Lounge, the DJ, and Bridget Gray, um, wow. mesmerizing human. I actually ended up being on a team with them. And so I was like, this is a thing. This is a thing. I've done a thing here. And so I slammed. Everything was memorized at that point. And then I developed a partnership with this woman, Molly. And we went on tour. We did a college tour. And we did six months on the East Coast, doing a different college every day. And then in the daytime, we would go to local high schools and just be like, hey, we're performing at Wake Forest. Can we do poems for your kids? And the teachers would be like, please do anything with them. And so it was, it was through all of that touring and memorizing that I had this moment on stage. I was at a, at a college and before we performed, someone came in and told a girl that her father had died. And that's like what we walked into. Like I physically saw this person walk in, tell this girl, I saw her fall on the ground. And then they handed us microphones and we're like, okay, do your poems now. And I was like, her dad just died. Like, I don't have shit to say right now. There's no poems for this. Like, it's be quiet time. But we were being paid. And so we had to do an hour set. As we're doing the poems, there was a TV in the back of the room that was on BET. And I had been sexually assaulted when I was 19. And so I had a poem in my set that was about that. And really like relived that night in those moments. And while doing this poem, 
I realize that I'm watching TV in the back of the room, like full on engaged in this TV program while retelling the story of my date rape. And it was in that moment that I was like, something has to change because I'm on autopilot. I should never be so disconnected from my lived experience that I can be watching TV while talking about one of the most triggering moments of my life. And so it really was in that moment that it was kind of like an undoing. I stopped doing poetry when we came off tour for probably like six months. I didn't do, I didn't read any poems. I would go to the lounge and just listen. And then after that, it was kind of like relearning poetry and really choosing. And so I I kind of made a conscious choice that I was going to read my poems, but that was the only way for me to be present, like as present as I wanted to be, as authentic as I wanted to be, was not to rehearse, but to come to the work present every single time. And I couldn't find another way to be able to do that. That felt the same to me. And I think there's something really beautiful about imperfections and about like human moments. Mm-hmm. Like it's why when I hit my mouth on the microphone at the shine, I thought it was funny because it's human and I'm a human. And so like, let's laugh because it was funny as opposed to me being perfect and polished. And like, I think there's something beautiful about that, but there's also something really isolating about the necessity to be perfect all the time and also doesn't create space for other people to admire something real. I think about the Kardashians and all the things that we see on social media all the time. And now we're in a space where people are craving things that are real. There was a long time people loved fake shit. And now when you have nothing else, you have nothing to entertain you. When you've watched everything on Netflix, the thing you actually want is someone who gives a shit about you and someone who knows you for real, who you don't have to put makeup on for. Someone who even in your crusty sees your brilliance and your beauty. And I think as an artist, that's really what I aspire to do is like to not put on a show, but to share a moment. What did you notice about how the crowd engaged with you when you made that very intentional choice after having gone to 200 colleges in six months? You've now gone up thousands of times. How was your relationship with the audience at that point? It was honest. There was no wall. There was no veil. It was me and these people this community. There was more reverence for the moment. It was more tender. I got something out of it too. I remember feeling very used when I was doing college shows and doing shows every single day. I was like, these people don't even know me. They don't appreciate anything. Like they're just, I'm giving them my stories. They feel good. And then they go home. And then I go back to my hotel room and I order room service and I wake up the next day and I get on a flight and I go to another city and it was empty and meaningless. And I was like, what am I away from my family and away from all my friends for six months for this, for money that then I'm going to come home and have nothing to come home to. Like who cares? I was in a relationship and was missing my partner every single day. And I was like, I don't even know what's happening in their life. And I'm out here doing something that doesn't actually matter to me for money. Like, nah. Do you feel like you would develop your voice by that time? Yeah. I feel like my voice was coming in. I think it's definitely matured over time, but For sure, I still stand by those poems, for sure. And were you still writing as prolifically, a poem a day at that point? Or did you have crowd favorites that you would sometimes go to and you knew it was going to get some sort of reaction? Yeah, I mean, then it was like, you know, if you're, it, it also depended on if it was like, I'm at an open mic versus if I'm at a professional gig where they're paying me to be awesome, right? Mm-hmm. That's probably not the day to 
test out some work. Right? <laughs> um, so I was like learning those kind of professional things of like, okay, so now I'm getting paid to do these shows. So what does that mean? And in corporate settings, what does that mean? Can I curse in corporate settings? Or is that something I want to do to, to like kind of make it spicy? Like I was learning to make those kind of choices. I wasn't writing every single day for sure at that point, like touring totally like killed the desire to write. And so that was part of taking those six months off was just to like decompress and then make choices again. At this point, what do career options look like as a spoken word poet? I mean, is this something, because I know you ended up going into teaching and I want to talk about that, but I'm just curious what you envision for yourself, say 10 years down the line of being so excited about this, this new thing, this relatively new thing in your life. Yeah. So, I mean, at that point, I'm in my early twenties and kind of the avenues at that point were like to go on deaf poetry. Which you did. To go on tour. I didn't go on deaf poetry. I w- Stan Lathan reached out to me and asked me to do a show with he and Debbie Allen. And so mm-hmm. I was a part of the deaf poetry all-star show, but I wasn't on the actual television show. I was asked to submit tapes for several years. But what I realized was you didn't get anything out of that. They paid you $600 and then they made a million dollars off of you. And then you went home. There were a lot of people that were on deaf poetry that we never heard of again. Mm. after being on that show and so because i was close with with shihan who was who was the west coast rep for the show i just realized that there wasn't that much that came out of that this was before social media right so like you couldn't leverage it really it was like you were on tv and people saw it and then they'd like look up your youtube and they would like be in their college dorm and write your poem out and like that was the extent of really what could happen and there were some people who went on to tour and could really level up but there weren't that many people that were doing that probably like maybe one or 2% of the poets that I knew that were actually making a living off of poetry. And so I was thinking about why that was true. Like, because there was no infrastructure within the community that poetry was seen as like a stepchild of the entertainment business, but people always pulled poets into things, but there was no equity in it. So I was really business minded in that way. I was thinking about, okay, how can we evolve the poetry lounge at that point? I had been there for several years. And in many ways was like a stakeholder and really had the ear of the, of the guys and the listening of the guys and was helping out and doing stuff. And so I was thinking about infrastructure. I was like, we need to like make classes so poets can be better. Like, mm. how do they grow if there's nowhere to teach them? Like, that doesn't make sense. We have this community of seasoned poets, but they're not sharing any of their wisdom. That doesn't make sense to me. So I was like, okay, after I came back from tour, I was sitting there and I was listening and I was listening and I was just really disgusted with the dishonesty that like what was so transformative for me was going in a space and feeling like people were telling the truth. They were telling what was really happening for them. And I felt seen and heard. That was why I started going there. That's what drew me to poetry. And with the introduction of deaf poetry and like being able to be like pseudo famous, it watered it down with slam. It watered it down. And so now people were just like, they're trying to like essentially jerk off on stage. And I was really disgusted with that. And so I created an integrity and vulnerability workshop. And I was like, let's just see what happens if people take this. And I offered it and the class filled up immediately. And I was like, okay, so there are people that want to do more and do better. Okay, cool. And then I realized I was really good at teaching. (laughs) I was like, oh, 
okay, this is interesting. And I was like, well, maybe I can teach what I love. And like, maybe I can do poetry and teach. Because I was like, I don't want to be a traditional teacher. Like, I don't like rules like that. I'm not going to like all the meetings. But like, maybe there's something about the space between. And I've always been a bridge person. So I'm like, oh, this is the space between. This is what happens after the poetry lounge to get people prepared to go back to the poetry lounge. They take a class. Great. Okay, cool. And then I got the offer to be funded to develop another program for high school kids. And the whole time I was on tour those six months, we would take over high schools. And so like, I knew there was a magic there. I loved seeing kids come alive. Teachers would email us six months later and be like, if you guys are ever back on the East coast, please come back. Our kids are still talking about you. Like you did more for our students in that one day than we've been able to do in an entire school year. Right. What was it about you that you feel made you a great teacher? That I was willing to see people where they were and invite them into something more. I can make a person curious about a thing. Did you have any exercises that like your, your go-to exercises for that kind of thing? I mean, really, uh, first of all, I would always share poems with kids before I asked mm-hmm. them to do anything. And I would always share a really vulnerable poem. Mm. So they would know who I was. And then I would say, I'm not here to like make you do anything. I just want to like invite you to learn about poetry in a way that your teacher is not going to teach you. Hmm. Like poetry for me is different than what's in those books. Like I would just be honest. Like I didn't care about Shakespeare. I didn't care about none of them poems we ever read in high school. I didn't like any of them. I thought they were boring and dumb. And so I was leveling with them of like, yeah, what they're going to offer you probably not that dope, but I know a guy from Brooklyn who has a fly poem. Want to hear it? Here it is. Right. And then they're like, wait, this is poetry. And I'm like, yeah. So what do you want to say? Cause I want to listen and I don't know who else wants to listen to you but I want to listen. So what's up? And then they tell me everything because I was just being honest. Like I'm genuinely interested. What do you have to say? And you found that that also translated over to incarcerated youth as well. Yeah. I mean, it's the same mechanism. I mean, part of why I love teaching kids who are incarcerated is because all the systems have given up on them, including maybe their parents. I mean, like this system is exhausting. And so like, it is challenging to still be a parent if your child is incarcerated. I want to go in and say, I don't care what you did or what they say you did. I don't care. And I never even want to know. I don't care. It's not relevant. What I want to know is who you want to be. What I want to know is how you got here. Like, do you understand what happened? Can you rewrite your own story? That's what I want to know. And nobody else is listening to you. They're all telling you who you are. I want to actually know who you are. I want to know who you want to become. And teaching them things about like the school to prison pipeline, right? They don't know about this. They don't know about trauma. They don't know these things that they are being impacted by. And so in many ways, it's me trying to like give them the hacks that maybe nobody else will give them so that they can navigate out. That if I only have this time with them, I want to give them everything that nobody else will give them. And that's why, why I teach in, incarcerated kids, because they're just kids. Have any of your kids gone on to become uh, noteworthy or famous in the poetry space? I mean, I have kids from like who went to high schools that I taught who totally do poetry and like went on to Youth Slam and Slam in college and all kinds of different things or kids that I taught through 826 LA. 
things like that. But my incarcerated kids, I've taught them so recently that they either are still in the system or are still rebuilding their lives. And so we'll know in the next like three to five years, but I still maintain relationships with some of them for sure. Let's talk a little bit about your experience with starting the Siren Collective, which was your monthly open mic poetry. So I started the Siren Collective with Maida Del Valle and Molly Engelhart, two women who were in who were in poetry at that time. Maida was one of the youngest people to ever win the National Slam champion title. This incredible Puerto Rican fly girl from Southside Chicago, and we really were sick of how patriarchy was showing up in poetry, and felt like we wanted to put poetry where it deserved to be, which was in an art space. So we rented this art gallery in North Hollywood and would hold open mics and slams once a month and would pay people to slam. We really wanted to like teach people that what they were doing was worth money, not to just be like getting a cup of coffee and a donut afterwards. Like that's not payment. That's cute, but it's not money. And so we did that for a year trying to also take poetry out of just the poetry lounge. Like all a lot of the poetry venues at that point were closing And the Poetry Lounge has been around for over 20 years. And so it's kind of the staple and kind of like the way things happen in Los Angeles in terms of like young poetry. But we just thought there was like, there was another way that it could be done. And we wanted to like play with that. And so we did. You lasted for a year. And then what happened after that? It was really just that we all were busy. Like we all were still like Maida and I both were full-time poets. So we were traveling all the time. And so like schedules were conflicting and it just got complicated to do together and like maintain it in that way. You know, so it was like the fairest, most honest thing to do was to navigate out of that. Like it was a great opportunity for us and a great learning lesson for each of us. But it wasn't anything that we were trying to do forever. Like my goal was never to like run a poetry venue. Was it a situation where one person was doing more work and then people started like getting a little bit like, well, you're not really showing up. And so I'm going to take some time off. Or was it that kind of thing happening? I mean, it was just a bit of like conflicting schedules. Like there was no like pettiness. Like Molly and I were in town. Maida mm-hmm. wasn't. She was like far more successful than both of us at that time. And so she was always traveling. So she was trying to manage traveling and being like a partner to this organization that we were trying to develop. And Molly and I always had a strained relationship. So there was just a lot happening. You know, it was just like, this is not going to, we're not going to be able to manage this thing unless we are able to build a bigger community around it. And that wasn't happening fast enough for our needs. And we still all had the poetry lounge that we were still going to every week. So it was kind of like, yeah, we have this thing, but we it's not like mandatory that we have it. It was really to offer the community alternatives. What advice would you give to someone who wanted to do what you guys did? Well, it ain't for the faint of heart. I think <laughs> and you're laughing because you know, any kind of live production is blood, sweat, and tears. If you don't have a heart for it, you burn out really quickly. You also learn who your friends are. And mm. learn what your community is. And so through the Poetry Lounge, but also through that, I really learned that I need a community of people around me who are committed to participating fully. I want people on my squad who are like, what do we need to do? Let's make it happen. I don't want people who are just like clapping on the sidelines. Like that doesn't validate me at all. That's an audience. I don't need that. I need people who are like, that's brilliant. What do you need? 
if that's really your goal, I think asking yourself why is it a necessary thing or is it an ego thing is really important to ask yourself. And then who does it serve and how can you level up that service? Like what's your larger commitment? Because there's a lot of great things that are happening, but there's no larger commitment. It's just about money. And frankly, we have enough shit. We don't need more. Mm. So do something that has heart and that matters. And I think really anything that has a pay it forward kind of vibe to it is important. And so if it doesn't, I don't know why you're doing that. And we're having this conversation in 2021. We're still kind of in, you know, semi lockdown and all of that. How has that changed the poetry scene? To be honest, I'm not really a part of like the poetry community anymore. I'm way more like social justice, mental health, poetry. Like I Mm -hmm. live at those kind of intersections. I know that majority of the poetry venues that are still in existence have all gone to digital and kind of having like a weekly Instagram live thing or, you know, or a Zoom poetry thing. And what about you though? How are you expressing mostly Instagram and Twitter? I'm like on Twitter, but I don't like be on Twitter. Uh, Like I have an account, but like the last post is probably like two years ago being like, I love you, Chrissy Teigen. So I kind of like exist on Instagram as like my main hub of like where I'm posting things. But I'm not like heavy on social media anymore. Like it has a very clear purpose, but I'm not interested in social media. Like I'm interested in real human connection. And so if we can use these tools because they're tools to connect in a meaningful way, I'm with it. But a lot of what happens on social media is just like silly. And so like, I'm not, I'm not super present on social media, but I'm, I did a thing with Esther Perel and it, and we shared it on social media, but like, that wasn't the purpose. It was just an outcome. And so like, that's kind of the way that I use social media and the way that I'm, I'm showing up with that work. What activism, social justice project are you currently excited about and working on? Over 2020, we, Allison Kunis, a muralist, and I started a love language project, which was a response to George Floyd's murder and us being in our 30s. And, you know, we've done a lot of protests and been frontline. And now it's, you know, at least from my perspective, it's, it's time to be more strategic in our efforts. And so Allison and I, Allison is a six foot tall white woman and we came together to create posters and protest murals in cities where black voices are not. And so we took to the streets of Venice and Santa Monica and these wealthy neighborhoods and took voices like Bell Hooks and Ava DuVernay and James Baldwin and put really poignant quotes in those places as a catalyst to have conversation. And some of my work also, but really thinking about how can we level up the conversations that we're having? How can we make these connections more meaningful? How can we, even in a passive way, be challenging communities, right? Because it's not, for me, the work is not always yelling. And in fact, very, very often it's not the yelling, but finding ways to meaningfully connect and have conversations that are hard because that's like, that's where the real work is. And so how to do that in a smart way, but also in an artistic way. And so super passionate about that and like the next incarnation of how we can continue to do that. So one of the artists who was working on that project and I, Jane, we started a project where we are essentially making certificates and awards for life moments that there are no awards for, right? Oftentimes, like if you stop dating a toxic human, 
um, and you choose yourself, there's no award for that. But there really should be, right? Or when you quit the job that you know you hated anyway and you bet on yourself, there should be an award for that. And so we started making certificates that are available for people to purchase to hang on our walls. Like what if we celebrated ourselves and celebrated our own community? So the first one we did was celebrating that we survived 2020 because that is incredible actually. And, and in terms of like the historical you know, perspective on that, it may take a while for us to recognize how big a feat that was, but there were many people who did not survive for a multitude of reasons, but we all did. And that is absolutely worthy of celebration. I saw that you have a pretty fire merch store there with all kinds of, I saw one fuck you texts that I didn't send or something like that. (laughs) I did a chat book called text messages and love letters never sent. And then I have another chat book called fuck it. Did you guys do a Ava DuVernay quote at a vegan restaurant in like silver Lake or no Los Feliz or something like that? It was actually Jane and Katie and I, Ava is my longtime girl crush, and I, I love her a lot and really respect her. And so when I was putting together these quotes, I was like, who are the people that inspire me who I, I want to put their, their words bigger, mm. right? It's wonderful to see an Ava quote in a magazine. I want that shit on the biggest billboard I can find, <laughs> right? Um, and so this restaurant actually reached out to us, and they were like, We'd love to have a quote. They're queer owned. They're vegan. They're all the things. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm down. And I was like, what would be the best quote for this space? And so I picked Ava knowing that her space is is not that far from there in Frogtown. And it's just an ode and a love letter in many ways and sign of respect to her. Usually when people are young, their idea of success is, oh, make a lot of money and get famous and whatever. But then as, as they have life experience and they find their passion and their purpose, obviously that changes. So I'm just curious, how are you thinking about success these days? Success has been and probably always will be for me about living in a way such that you have no regrets. So making peace with things. And also happiness is really how I define success and quality of life. If I can't laugh and play and be in love, then none of the shit is worth it to me. It doesn't matter how much money I have. If I'm too busy to be in love, that's not for me. And that's with everything. Like there's nothing more important than quality of life and being able to wake up on a day and it be sunny when you didn't expect it to be and going, let's go to the beach and just being able to do that. I intentionally don't schedule my life so far out when people are like, can we book you for 2025? I'm like, no, because I don't know who I'm going to be then. And I don't know that I want to do whatever I'm doing with you. So I always want the freedom to be playful and fun and laugh and eat ice cream on rainy days. Um, That's really, really important to me and really the definition of success. Is your dad still around? And if so, what's your relationship like with him these days? My dad is still living. He is not around me. We kind of reconnected when I was like 15 and spent a couple of years getting to know each other and had some really wonderful times. I said all the things I needed to say. He said all the things he needed to say and all the things that I really deeply needed to hear. And we, we reconciled and spent a lot of time together. And what I recognized was that my father is 
really wonderful at a distance. We don't share the same values in terms of um, the kind of people that I want really close to me. Mm-hmm. So while I really deeply appreciate all his contributions, he's not a person that we don't vibe day to day. He's a great person to talk to on the phone. He's like a riot and he'll give you all the wisdom, but he doesn't hold space in the way that I want my father to hold me. And we have given it a really good effort. So we keep it, we keep it a little distant. Well, I definitely was not expecting to go into so much detail about your, (laughs) your parentage in the beginning of this conversation, but it definitely shed a lot of light into your journey. And just thinking about you as a, as a young person and having this affinity for people watching, it makes a lot of sense seeing how your life kind of played out because to do what you've been able to do so effectively and with so much heart requires a level of introspection and observation that a lot of people just don't have. You know, I, I consider myself to be a very observant person. And what you realize when you get older is that most people just aren't that way. Like most people just take most things for granted and they don't really go beyond the surface of what makes somebody tick. So it's not surprising to see that you have become poetry as Natalie <laughs> and all that that entails. And I'm, I'm really pleasantly surprised to hear everything that has come up in this conversation. And I'm glad that, you know, I just got the spark of inspiration to reach out to you because you left a resonance when I, I I didn't know you from, from Eve when I first crossed paths with you. I think, I I don't know. I think Allison or somebody else on the team knew about your work and they said, Oh, she'd be great. And I was just trying to delegate as much as I could at the moment in time, because they're so, you know, throwing those events was so overwhelming for me. And I just remember being blown away. And then we never really, I never saw you again in person. We had a couple of exchanges in email and that kind of thing afterward. But I always, you know, you, you definitely left an impression. And I, I have a feeling you do that with everywhere you go. What is the impression? <laughs> what was left? No, you're just like this. You were like one of the most transparent people I've ever encountered. And the way you spoke about it was so effortless. And it makes other people open up and become more transparent when they're around you. So you you talked a lot about your poem that night was about dating and there was some body image stuff in there. And I just thought that was so refreshing to hear somebody get up there and, and, uh, and talk about. I never want to waste people's time. I think moments should be worth it. And we should walk away from each other going like, yeah, I got something from that. And they got something from that. And we feel good about that. And if we can't do that, I don't know what we're doing. And so whether it's with my work or my presence or how I show up on a Zoom call, like that really is the intention is like, let this be a memory, right? Because I'm trying to live with no regrets. So I don't want to be like, oh, I wish I didn't do that thing. I need to get something out of it. I need to have a story to tell. And in my early years, I was always like, if nothing else, I'm in it for the story. And so I would go in, where's, what's the story I'm going to tell about this moment? And I think that makes um, monotonous and mundane things more interesting when we can live that way. I acknowledge you for showing up so boldly and bravely and, uh, and you're, you're an inspiration to me and, and many, many others. Thank you very much for joining this conversation. 
Thank you for listening to my conversation with Natalie Patterson. You definitely want to follow her on social media. She posts some very inspiring content. You can find Natalie at Natalie is Poetry across all platforms. Her website is natalieispoetry.com. And she's got a pretty extensive YouTube presence as well. If you just search her name, Natalie Patterson. And I'll put the links to her nonprofit, A Love Language Project, in the show notes. And if you resonated with Natalie's story and you're like, man, everybody needs to hear this podcast, but you haven't left a review yet, you can help a lot more people discover these conversations by taking literally 10 seconds to rate the podcast. All you do is look down at your screen, click where it says at the end of the tunnel, which is in purple. And if you're not listening to this on Apple Podcast app, you want to look for a button that says listen on Apple Podcast. Click that button. And then once you get onto the podcast feed, scroll down past all of the previous episodes to where it says ratings and reviews. And all you're going to do is tap the star on the far right and boom, you've left the review. It's that easy. So thank you to those of you who took the time to do that. It really means a lot to me. And you can find the show notes and a transcript of my interview with Natalie at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email. I have a weekly email that I send out every Tuesday as well. And both are relatively short, inspirational, motivational messages that I've been sending out for years now. There's also a book coming out soon called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. It's my third book. And I'll be talking more about that as we count down to the May 2021 launch date. Thanks again for listening to this podcast and for sharing it with your friends and your followers. I will see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. And in the meantime, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith, and I'll send you much peace and love in the process. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.